0: This is Ian Freebairn-Smith, and on behalf of the board, I welcome you to another ASMAC podcast. What you're about to hear is a recording of one of our monthly luncheon presentations recorded at Catalina's Jazz Club in Hollywood. These podcasts feature leading Hollywood composers, arrangers, orchestrators, and musicians talking about their lives and music. So
1: please join me and ASMAC in welcoming Dynamic Music Partners
2: Chris Carter, Michael McQuistian,
1: Lolita and Lolita Ritmanis. I generally have to sit in the middle. I don't know why, but today I'm not going to. Since we're not being moderated, we're we're pretty much going to rely on your questions. But um, I wanted to first say uh, what a great honor it is to be honored by ASMAC, Um, the talent in this room, uh, your experience, wealth of knowledge, and just sheer brilliance is humbling to me. So the idea that we're being honored is it's like, well, let's wait maybe 20, 30 years maybe. <laughs> I don't know if we're ready to be honored, but we, we certainly thank you for the great honor. And um, I know that um, I feel my teacher, uh, my teacher Moro Bruno sitting on my shoulder and looking down and saying, yeah, Lolita, you get 'em, him, girl. So I know that he was a big uh, asmac he was a board member i believe too so thank you so much for that
2: i would second that and knowing who's gone before us up here um it's humbling and especially meaningful so i really appreciate it as well um and i there's many people who have been Asmac, longtime long ASMAC time members who were my teachers and so we'll talk about that i'm sure as we go through our process of how we did what we did so
3: And as we're a trio, uh, I guess I have to third everything that they've already seconded.
1: You have the rock and roll mic. It's louder, isn't it? We'll we'll
3: have to talk in here. (laughs) Good evening, Los Angeles.
2: Well, I guess we should start just about uh, talking about where we kind of came from, just so everybody kind of knows that story. So you want to lead off? No, you go first. Uh, Me? But but it's one, two. Okay.
1: All right. Um, I grew up in Portland, Oregon. Uh, very musical family, um, and my parents are here actually, Dr. Anders Ritminis and Asi Ritmanis. They were very, very supportive of, of my musical venture from early on. I can truthfully say I never really considered d- doing anything else other than music. Uh, My sister, growing up, my sister's 15 years older than I am, and she was a concert pianist and played Carnegie Hall. And she was always practicing, and of course I had to follow suit. Um, Started out by studying piano and did all the competitions and whatnot, and at a certain point realized that my nerves couldn't really handle the combination of my head and my fingers and remembering all that and all the movements and everything. I decided I would focus on composition. Uh, I was a songwriter and all through high school played in the jazz band and sang in the musical and wrote some arrangements for the senior graduation assembly and whatnot so it was always in my in my heart and something i just had to do um, I also was blessed with, with having a second family which is my uh, Latvian culture, my Lat- my, I'm of Latvian heritage and speak Latvian and we have song festivals every year somewhere in the world and lucky me, I am asked often to write for these festivals so basically being always thrown into the deep end of the water and being asked if I could possibly write a, a new piece or a musical. or whatnot. So um, at a certain point, after high school, I decided that Los Angeles was the place to come. Uh, Went college hunting, and I just had a bug for the contemporary music, big band arranging, film scoring. At that point, I couldn't find anything I was looking for at first in the universities, but I found a school, a little school on Ventura Boulevard. Does anyone remember what that was? Dick yes. Grove School of Music, yes. And I just fell in love with that school. Phenomenal place. Actually, no Milton Nelson from Dick Grove days. We, were, we went there around the same time. And... Um, it was do i have to say okay (laughs) it was early 80s let's say that yeah and it was fantastic it was dick grove jack fearman Mundell Lowe, um lalo schifrin came in and tied even henry mancini came in one after the other just this amazing pool of knowledge and and uh guidance and being again thrown in the deep end of the end of the pool and you will never forget to not write for the clarinets out of range, you know, until when you hear the clarinets trying to play something, that's how you actually learn. And that's how I learned. So I was thrown in the deep end. And from Dick Groves, um, I actually, Moro recommended me to Sookie Fidelibus over at Disney for a proofreading gig. So that was my entree into the into the kind of real world situation, and you know, I'll pause there because I have a lot of stories about that. I don't want to mo- monopolize the conversation. So that's kind okay. of you know, before my, that's where my career kind of started. So
2: okay, okay, that's
1: good. Yeah. Well done. <laughs>
2: um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, I gotta follow that. Um, all right. Uh, I had a completely different situation in that I grew up in Missouri. I'm from the Midwest, and I also had a wonderful musical family and my mother is here. That you just saw that flash that points her out. <laughs> Yay. And because my mom was involved in choral music for years, and uh, in the school system there, there was always music around the house and everything, Um, I tried out a lot of different stuff before I decided to go into music. I was involved in musical theater. I did some acting. um, I played lots of different instruments, a lot of different kinds of clarinets and things. I tried a little French horn, a little saxophone, all that kind of stuff. But I originally thought I wanted to be a chemist, so that, okay, whatever. (laughs) I was was very young. which is also kind of weird. Um, And then I thought I wanted to be an architect, but I did an apprentice for a while under uh, under an architect that was in our little town. And I discovered that that was not for me at all. It was not what I thought it was at all. And so uh, then I just kind of started thinking about what I really liked doing. And I think my happiest moments were always involved in musical theater or something having to do with performance and something having to do with that sort of live aspect of performance and the marriage between drama and music. And I didn't. I mean, you know, being in the Midwest, I had no idea what film composing was. I didn't even know it was a career. I just took the music for granted that came behind these pictures. But, you know, I was talking with my folks one day and they were just like, well, what about, what about that music that you hear, you know, behind those movies that you like so much? And I was just like, well, I think that would be really cool. I think I could do that, but we didn't know how to do that at all. And we didn't know where to go or, 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 what, or what to do to find information about that. But there was a composer that I'm sure you're familiar with, David Raxon, who was having a concert. In town one time, and I had gone. I decided I wanted to go to college at North Texas State to study as a composition major because I thought, okay, film composing is for me. I didn't know how I was going to get into it, but uh, anyway, I, I got my undergraduate degree at North Texas State University. While I was there, David Raxson was concertizing in Houston and in Dallas, and so uh, I went to his concert, of course and was just blown away, naturally, because it was him conducting his own music, and it was just wonderful. And so I thought, well, you know, he must be staying in town somewhere. And so we, we kind of all got our heads together in the family, and we thought, well, where could he be? And so we called around. We found out what hotel he was staying at. And we call, I called him <laughs> at his hotel, and I said, hey, you know, I'm a young composer, and I'm studying at North Texas, and I'm just about to graduate, and I'd like to be a film composer. What do you think I should do? And he said, well, he said, you you should go to usc you should really you know look up the usc program and he said i teach there and you know if you are accepted then i would be one of your teachers and and you you should get in touch with them and here's the how to do that and so he kind of provided me with the information i needed to be able to to do that and so i applied uh to the usc film scoring program the first year and i was rejected um they didn't think i had what what it would take to be a film composer. They said I was too um, one-sided, that I wasn't versatile enough. And so I, th- I thought, OK, well, I'm going to show you that I'm not one-sided. And so I took <laughs> a year off and spent the year making demo tapes, which I didn't even know what that was at the time. But I was like, well, I'm going to write some music here. That's not what I have on my demo. So. I did that, and then resubmitted. And thank goodness, the year that I resubmitted, they had an administration change, and Buddy Baker took over the program at USC. Who I'm sure you all know, Buddy. Yes, absolutely. And so I was accepted that year. And so the, uh, I actually went to the USC Film Scoring Program for the for Buddy's first year, and ended up graduating from from that program. And at that time, Buddy kind of was watching out after me, as he did for all the students that were in his program, and he. Said, well, I, I said, what am I going to do when I graduate? And he said, well, there's this guy, and, and you know, I heard about this job, and, and he needs an assistant. And I said, well, I don't care what it is, whatever it is, just, is, I said, is it in music? And he said, yeah, yeah, no, he's a he's a keyboard player, and he, you know, and he and he works on all these big films. I said, well, that sounds good to me. I said, I'll, I'm, I could do that. Whatever that is, I'm sure I could do that. He said, well, okay, I'll, I'll I'll get you I'll get you a meeting with him. And so anyway, he forwarded me this number, and I called this number, and of course, who was it? It was none other than Mike Lang. <laughs> so yay. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
2: so I didn't I being the Midwestern naive kid, I was like, well Mike Lang, that's okay, great. I didn't know what he'd done. I just knew he buddy said he was great. So I thought, okay, he's great. And I knew I'd seen his name and credits in albums before, and so I thought, well, okay, he's he's definitely somebody. And so anyway. <laughs> No question. And so I took the job and worked for Mike for three years, and, and that's where I'm going to leave off, because at that point in time I started you know, getting sort of to know uh, people you know, in these organizations and stuff through being involved with Mike, and he would take me to scoring sessions and things. and So that's kind of how I got my entree. So thanks, Mike.
3: <laughs> Your turn. My turn. Okay. <laughs> Back to the big Mike. <laughs> I actually uh, grew up in Texas. Um, I was the only child of a uh, Methodist minister. And uh, my mother was a psychologist. And just growing up in the church, actually, there was always uh, music. And I, I think there was also a performance aspect to it, too, in terms of you know, every Sunday you go and you deliver the word and then the message. And so I knew that I had to rebel from that as quickly as possible. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but um, I started playing the piano when I was four. And I was encouraged by my teachers to write and to try little compositions. Um, by the time I got into junior high, uh, I was writing chamber pieces and uh, things for smaller amounts of, of, of uh, smaller groups of instruments. And then um, my orchestra teacher in high school showed me his orchestration book. And all of a sudden, I just thought, oh my goodness, you know, writing for a whole orchestra, writing for all these different instruments and what they can do and the sounds and the timbres. It just, it, it kind of ignited something in my mind. And so even though I was, I was supposed to be studying in, during high school, I was actually kind of reading this book in between. <laughs> and I also even started writing my first orchestra piece. And uh, all of my teachers didn't really appreciate that, but I continued to keep my grades up, so they really couldn't say much, I guess. But um, I finished my first orchestration then when I was a, a senior, and it was played by my high school orchestra. And I realized that, that definitely music had to be a part of my life because not just you, know, not just as an avocation, but as a vocation. It's something that I was incredibly passionate about and that I wanted to, to continue to follow. So um, coincidentally enough, I ended up going to North Texas State also. Um, Mike and I had the exact same uh, composition teacher mm-hmm. and the exact same piano teacher, but we didn't know each other because you left a couple of years... Because before you're really young. <laughs> a couple of years before I arrived. Um, and uh, North Texas has a very well-known jazz program, and I, I tried to uh, avail myself as much as, as possible what the, the jazz program had to offer, but my major was was classical composition. and. Um, in that school, especially at the time I was there, wanting to write for film and television was something that wasn't really looked at very favorably, and um, so I, I guess the uh, the the re- being the rebel that came out when I was younger, it just kind of caused me to rebel again, and I, I decided, well, I'm going to do this, especially because I don't think they want me to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I was I was very I made no no um, no I didn't I didn't hide the fact that I definitely wanted to be uh, working uh working in the film and television industry if, if i was if i was uh you know fortunate enough to, enough to get there um i also played the double bass in the orchestra uh the double bass i think is one of the best instruments you can play as a composer wanting to learn about the the orchestra because unless you're playing strauss who wrote cello played parts for the double bass you can almost kind of play with one, half your brain and then you're actually sitting in the middle of the ensemble and you can kind of listen to the doublings and the the voicings and um I also happen to be going to to school. My stand partner in the orchestra was a young uh, boy who's my age named Ian Walker. And Ian just happens to be Shirley's son. And I was so, you know, I was just wasn't really uh, informed as into the whole industry, and I didn't know who Shirley Walker was, but he assured me that she was somebody I really needed to know. <laughs> and I said, well, I think I want to write film music, and he said, yes, Chris, a lot of people want to write film music. <laughs> but um, I, I started doing projects in the film department where I would score the student films, and I hired the um, the student orchestra to play for those scores and Ian heard enough that he thought um, that he he thought that maybe he would open the door so he very very graciously invited me to come out and and meet his mother and I played her some of the work that I had done there and when I graduated she um, offered me the opportunity to come out and be her assistant and that's then brings us to the point of, Lolita, take it over. (laughs) So Chris, what year was that that you came out? (laughs) Uh, I graduated in 1993, and it was 1994 when I came out here.
1: Okay, so backtracking maybe about five six seven years so i'm at the disney door knocking on the door i'm here for my uh, 7 a.m call uh, to be a proofreader well i didn't get to proofread and with all my training and with all orchestration study and private study and study at csun and dick groves and everything I was put in the room, in the ozolid machine room. You know, do you remember the ozolid thing, the onion skin things? And I had to feed in the violin parts. <laughs> but you know what? I was thrilled. I was working at Disney, and I was so excited. And it really, I didn't feel jaded or anything. It was fantastic. So I would get these parts done. And occasionally, I would have a chance to proofread when the first call proofreader was too, too swamped. And, of course, when you're proofreading, you're learning, and you're, you're, you're able to kind of, you know, steal ideas and, and, and hopefully save the day by finding the mistakes, either that the orchestrator made um, coming from the sketch. I mean, this is all in the day of, uh, no, there weren't computers. I mean, we recognize the beautiful copying. Oh, this is so-and-so's hand, and this is so-and-so's hand, and this, is this, this orchestrator does it this way. And, and, you know, look at a Herbie Spencer score, and it looks a certain way, and you look at a, you know, Look at an Andrew Kinney score, and it looks a certain way. Although he, you weren't, you weren't yet, uh, I think, working at that time yet. But um, <laughs> it's, uh, it was so exciting, and I and Disney work. That was that lasted for a, a few years, and then my big, my big job really was uh, working for Joel Franklin at Warner Brothers, and there I kind of became sort of like one of Joel's right-hand people because Joel didn't really. I love Joel, but he off, he loved to have professional people surrounding him so that he could. Kind of flitter around the stage and do whatever Joel lo- loves to do, and and uh, at that point I met um, Patty. Uh, at that point she was Fidelib- Fidelibus later Zemiti and she just she loved me. She just some I made probably because I was a woman composer trying to break in, and um, Patty uh, always would recommend me to people. So I became kind of the go-to person when somebody would need an extra orchestrator or a for lack of a better term, ghostwriter, and I, I wrote a lot of cues for TV shows where I did get on the cue sheet, at least partially, but um, saving the day for other composers that were too busy or too drunk or whatever it was that they were, and they needed somebody to come in and, and do it. and. And I had situations uh, with one composer that who shall remain nameless, where um, the main Doug Frank at Warner Brothers is calling me at 6 am the morning of the session asking me if I can go to this composer 's house because there 's still five minutes of music that has not yet been t- delivered to the copyist 's office and so I said, uh, oh, "Okay, I'll go," and I went. And um, that's that's a story for that's a story for maybe a later kind of like a late night kind of story. <laughs> <laughs> Needless to say, the cue went really well, and I didn't get I, I got a pat on the back, and I got a lot of work from it, because I didn't demand attention. I didn't take attention away from the composer. I just. I say I, I did my gig. I did it right, and I and I got the job done. And from that, um, shortly thereafter, Shirley put out this call. Imagine this: somebody being gracious enough to say, "Hey, I'm looking for young, talented composers, and I'm going to give them some work." What? <laughs> uh, unheard of, uh, in my opinion, it's pretty unheard of. And she basically started this unofficial mentorship, mentoring kind of program with the help of with the support of Warner Brothers. And uh, that was for Batman the Animated Series. Mm. And um, many, many stories of orchestration and whatnot for other composers along the way. But that's, that's when uh, I actually had a chance to kind of audition for Shirley and, and was one of her mentees, as was me. Me. Take it, Mike. <laughs>
2: Um, let's see. When last we left off, um, I'm trying to think. Mike. Where was. We with Mike? Uh, sorry, with Mike, Lang. Mike Lang. Oh yes, of course. Um, <laughs> uh, well, so yeah. When I was working with Mike, I was learning a lot of things that had uh, that I thought were it was kind of this isn't really having to do with what I'm doing, but I know it's going to come in handy someday. I learned a lot, a lot about how to be more organized and a lot about how to program filemaker maker databases and how to wire MIDI racks and audio and lots of computer stuff. And I just was learning all this stuff because basically Mike would go out and do these amazing gigs at, you know, all these with all these different composers on these big scoring stages. And then I was sort of back sort of at the hub. I was like the air traffic controller back at the house, kind of managing all of these things. And I, I thought, and it didn't, it it was all, you know, like, he listened to something, wow, I got this composition degree, whatever. Again, it was the same reaction. I was like, I didn't care, I loved it. I was in the business, I was part of what was going on, you know, when whatever small part it was, I was making sure that things were happening and that was relating somehow to this film that was being done. And so that was good. And I just really had no idea how handy these things would come in for me later in my career, having to manage my own career and deal with my own technological issues and all this kind of stuff. So I learned an enormous amount with Mike. Well, during this process of being Mike's assistant, um, and of course, during that time he was always very gracious and introduced me as a composer and never said, well, this is my computer guy or whatever. He was always, you know, very respectful and I'm forever grateful for that. Mm-hmm. Met a lot of, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and met a lot of wonderful people during that time, a lot of other composers and orchestrators, people that Mike knew and, and that would come in and out of his professional and personal life, and so that was great. And and one day, I, I remember I was uh, working at the computer doing something on FileMaker, and uh, a guy was wiring Mike's, a couple of mics racks in the back of me because it, he had like several of these huge towering rack things, and we got to talking and, and you know I would seen this guy before you know and, I, and he was such a nice guy and I was like oh man he's really nice so you know we kind of started talking and uh, anyway we developed this nice friendship and so I was his friend for a couple of years, um his name was Don Walker and I was like oh you know and so and then a couple of years after we'd gotten to know each other and just were really friendly toward each other and we're kind of had a meeting of the minds on technology we kind of looked at things the same way. And he said, well, you know, my wife's a composer. I said, oh, really? Uh, That's interesting. And he he said, well, he said, you know, I I guess, let me preface that by saying that he had, he said, he asked me, what do you do when you're not working with Mike? I said, well, I'm a composer. He said, oh, really, my wife's a composer. That's actually how it happened. And I said, really, Shirley Shirley Walker? I said, well, you know, I haven't, again, I was like, I hadn't really heard of Shirley Walker, but he said, well, she's, you know, she's got some shows going on and everything, and she's kind of looking for some people to work with her, and he said, do you have any music that you might, you know, that might represent you that I could, I said, well, yeah, I can make you a cassette, because, of course, it was cassette, and so I said, yeah, I'll make you a cassette, and so I went home and ran off a cassette of some stuff that I had done, I had done some demo sessions, and so I had some cues,
1: and I have my things from USC as well. Interrupt. It, Mike's demo is recorded in London with a huge orchestra and sounds just amazing. So anyway, it's well. not, it wasn't just some Casio demo. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs>
2: so. Well, I was like, if I'm going to do this film scoring thing, I, if that's what I want to do, then I better go do it, like everybody does it, and then that way I won't have to, you know, worry about suffering by comparison. So anyway, <laughs> I had a good demo. Let's yes, just put it that way. It's still a good demo. <laughs> <laughs> it's still a good demo. And so I gave him this cassette, and you know, he took it away, and he's like, oh, "Okay, thanks." And I didn't hear anything for, you know, I don't know, three months or something. I thought, okay, well, you know, maybe she didn't like it, or you know, maybe it wasn't what she was looking for, and, and that's fine. And I was still working with Mike, and. You know, and then all of a sudden one day I got this call at home, uh, because I had my home number on the cassette. And it, and she's and this little voice. is was like, "Hi, Mike. This is Shirley Walker." And I, and I, I said, "Oh, hi, Shirley." I said, I, "You know, I know your husband, Don. He's such a nice guy." And he, you know, he told me about you. And he said, "Well," she said, "Well, I listened to your tape." And she said, "I'm doing this series," and she said, "I think I might need some help." And she said, "I think you'd be really good for this." And I said, "Well, yes, I'll do it." And She's like, "Well, let me tell you what it is." <laughs> I was like, "She said, it's it's Batman the animated series." I said, Batman, that sounds perfect. And she said, well, but I have to warn you. She said, I'm not, she said, I will not not listen to what you have to say about this until three days from now. I want you to listen to what I have to say. You will have to write in a certain style. You will have to do what I tell you to do, and it must fit in with the style of the show. You cannot go off doing your own thing. It's not okay. So just, if you accept this gig, you know, remember that you're not in charge. And you, that you will need to you will need to conform to what this is going to be. So you know, just have that in mind. She said, and and so call me, you know, in three days and let me know your decision. And so I said, oh, okay. I said, well, I can tell you now that my decision is, yeah, I'll do it the gig. Yeah. <laughs> but she said, no, you need to take the time. You need to really be okay with this because you know this is how it has to be. So I said, okay. So. Three days later, I you know almost to the minute I pick up the phone. I'm gonna yeah <laughs> yeah I want to do the gig. So that's how uh, and then I went over and had my first meeting with Shirley. So that's how I actually ended up at Shirley. You
1: know what chronologically because um, I know when Chris starts we'll we will have skipped forward about what four years maybe mm-hmm. three or four years. Uh, we both started working for Shirley, as did some uh, uh, Harvey Cohen the late Harvey Cohen uh, and several other composers, and what we would do is we would orchestrate for her first right and exactly how she wants it done perfectly Uh, we would drive out to her place and show her the orchestrations and she was very critical and and i was in tears sometimes and we were you know pulled out our hair and just oh my god why is she you know criticizing this but she was teaching us all along and it was just a phenomenal experience and then at a certain point she actually said well i'm going to give you some cues to write And uh, we split an episode, Mike and Shirley and I, right? Yeah, we did. Yeah, we split an episode. But it was like a last minute thing. Last minute. Oh, would you like to write some cues? Yeah, we needed two days. Yes, yes, yes. And who does this these days? Full cue sheet credit? Full screen credit? I mean, amazing, amazing, from day one. Totally respectful, totally, totally there. And so.
2: we bonded, L- Lolita and I, again, this is right before Chris was on the scene, but Lolita and I bonded over, over our drives out to see Shirley because we would be in the car and we'd be holding our sketches and we'd both be kind of shaken and like, oh my God, you know, mm-hmm. we get out there and then of course, you know, all this, you know, well, I don't know about this. And you, I think you're not, you're not doing this and this is what you're really intending here and we would both be kind of destroyed, but we would kind of build ourselves back up again. Right.
1: <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't um, steady enough to, uh, that, that wasn't the only thing we could do at that point we needed to earn some more money so right. meanwhile we were also orchestrating uh, for Michael Kamen and Elliot Goldenthal and Carter Burwell and, and, well, and Bruce Bacharach have... and I mean, it was it was a we were we were actually higher up on the orchestration list. We're not doing that right now, but we used to really orchestrate a lot. Of,
2: uh, yeah, and I have to interrupt you and say that actually I, that I was doing some of that, but only because of Lolita's good graces. After I had met her through Shirley, and we kind of got to know each other's work, she started recommending me for those things too. So kudos to Lolita. Well, for it's that. just
1: that's just how it works. I mean, I would get a call from uh, Bill Ross or, or Bruce Bachrach somebody and ask and say do I can can you help me out can you do this cue and then I and and if, if it's 3 a.m. and the session is I don't want to say the next day because I don't I, I I'm very on task I don't wait that long but I will give up a cue much sooner than than try to help, hold on to all those pages so it's better that the gig get done properly and that there aren't any mistakes and that it that you shine so that's why Mike helped me out and and Harvey and Mike and I and I mean there's a whole group of us that would just you know we were like Larry wrench yeah. We just we we were really tight. So at a certain point, uh, Chris arrives in town. Yeah, and he was working over
2: with Shirley while we were doing some things with her as well. So I mean, you know, but you but I think you started writing right away, didn't you?
3: Pretty I, much? I did, and actually, I I would be remiss to not recognize uh, my wife came and my parents-in-law, and my four-year-old son, Kalen, and uh, I just wanted to point out. Um, that uh in in a room full of composers and arrangers my wife is a conductor yeah <laughs> um, well, she's the she's the music director of the glendale symphony and so I'm, I'm really pleased to have uh you know that she could be here today and um and join us and my son actually i wanted to say about him um, this is the second time that he came and it, it was impressed upon him the first time there was a little uh thing in my hometown where they in texas where they recognized uh, people that were in in uh from west texas who had gone into the film industry of which there was only about two of us i think but my son was two at the time and we just told him and he didn't really understand the meaning of it but we said daddy's going to be a big star so you have to be a really good really behave and uh, they showed us a, a video bio of 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 the participants in this this panel up on a big screen and, and i guess that clicked as being oh that's the big star and when the video bio was over he turned to us and said Daddy's big star is gone. <laughs> oh, ouch! <laughs> so he, he got it, and so I'm really happy he could be here. Um, yeah, I, I actually did not um, get to to cut my teeth doing as much in, in any of the proofreading or the copy work or the orchestration, because Shirley brought me out and, as her assistant, uh, put me to, to work writing very quickly, because actually at that point there was she wanted to give me a chance, but the Batman series was almost done. Right. Um, you had done 64 episodes and then another 20, was yeah, it? We, we got so to 100. 100? Yeah. I can't remember. I, I came out when the, the show was in its last couple of, of, of episodes that were being produced, so I pretty much orchestrated one episode for Shirley and then she showed me up on the stage and um, at the time, especially in college, I, I was a bit of a rocker, and I had a lot longer hair. And I, I, I remember this, this sense from the musicians of, who is this really young kid with this long hair? Oh my God, he's holding the baton! <laughs> <laughs> and, but I, I conducted my cue, and I gave my cutoff, and um, I instantly felt, though, that they they got it, and there was there were smiles around the, among the musicians, and. And it was such an incredible privilege to get to work with them. And I know that we we miss that every day. We miss it more than you know. <laughs> um, so anyway, Shirley uh, started us, me working with Mike and Lolita. Um, and then Batman was over. And then we there was a little bit of a break, wasn't there? Not much. Not much. But I, I continued to work for her as as her synth, uh, synth guy. I maintained her studio. I was the one who was, uh, she was the first person she would call and say, it's not working. <laughs> So we have to say, well, what's not working? <laughs> Is it plugged in? <laughs> and um, so I kind of had this, di- this uh, dual personality of being somebody who was definitely on the technology side, but also on the orchestration side, too. Um, when she was working on a series called Space Above and Beyond, um, I did a lot of orchestration for her. And um, But then, uh, did space happen concurrently with Superman? Or was it was I, 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 a little I, bit later, I think, later. wasn't it? it was the, the producers it of yet. the Batman series then started a new show, uh, the, the Superman, the animated series, um, still superheroes, but a completely different style, whereas the Batman show was very um, you know, the style of the art was very art deco and it was there was kind of a, a darkness to it. Superman was all about you know life and light and bright brightness right and and, um, and that, that was about you know, then we did Batman beyond before she kind of. Away, well see,
2: I guess that they, there were all these composers that had been involved with Batman the animated series there was like i don 't know thirty five composers or something that was, Shirley had, had brought in and, and given a shot and, and they were on the stage. Some of these made it as far some of these composers made it as far as being able to do an episode and, and do cues and orchestrate it. I mean it was phenomenal the number of young composers that she gave an opportunity to just phenomenal and so when the series was over, she kind of sat down with the producers and they had a conversation about who she thought would be right. To continue on with these Warner Brothers shows it was a combination of I think a lot of things personality and work ethic and talent and just all sorts of kinds of things and so it sort of came down to you know who's who's gonna do this series and so she came to each one of us individually and and to Harvey as well and said you know I think you guys would make a great team and that's how we sort of started as More or less of a unit, I guess.
1: Yeah, we didn't. I mean, this dynamic music partners thing is really very young. It's only what two years? Two years. Two years. Two years. We've been together. We've been. We've been together for um, (laughs) what? Since,
2: since, seventeen yeah a long,
1: years. a long time, and we really there, we have we don 't have any kind of huge relationship problems I mean we, it stems out of a genuine respect for one another mm-hmm. and a respect for what we what we individually do and a respect for the musicians and the engineers and the technical people etc cetera, etc cetera. and uh, understanding that this this uh, industry really we want to work in an industry that it has a team team effort team spirit kind of and a, and a respect. And uh, how how we treat other people eventually does come back to us. I mean, we can't. There are plenty of jerks out there too, and, and awful people. But if you put out the good energy, it it, it tends to come back your way. And and uh, we have just been so amazingly blessed to have been working pretty much nonstop since since those early days with Shirley. Now that doesn't go with go to say that it's just been all handed on a silver platter. Um, and one interesting lesson was when. Uh, when the new, new series Batman Beyond, I mean Batman, but it's a whole different thing, Batman Beyond uh, was presented to Shirley, uh, basically the producers didn't think that, that she could do it, slash we could do it, because we were all traditional orchestral composers and they wanted something c- uh, cutting edge and edgy and electric guitar driven and whatnot. So what does Shirley do? Shirley doesn't take no for an answer. No. She just said, "No. Well, we're going to put together something for you to listen to." Yeah, just, so, she
2: said, "Just give us a shot, and we'll see what you think."
1: So, meanwhile, she's telling us, basically, not making us go out and buy a bunch of equipment, but sort of. I mean, you guys were more geared up than I was, but pretty much having to go and drop, you know, five figures worth of equipment and not understand anything about it, and having to learn about it and just gritting my teeth and pulling my hair out. But thank. Well, God, I, was I was the one that called you.
2: But I was the one that called you. I said, "What's the range of the electric guitar?" <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, I mean, really, it was like I was like, "Okay, I'm going to write this stuff, and it's going to be electric guitar." I was like, "What electric guitar?" I was like, "Okay." Well, and then I was like, "Well, I need to call her. She'll she'll know that. Lolita knows those things." So.
1: <laughs> but anyway, it was a guitar show, synth, electronic. It's, you know, and what, Rob Zombie. We, Rob we, we, Zombie. We were,
2: we were listening to Rob Zombie. So
1: she asked us to do individual demo cues. In the style of Rob Zombie, so we hired a guitar player, really great guitar player, um, Gabe, right? Gabe, 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 Gabe played Moses, on. Gabe Moses, phenomenal, phenomenal. So if you know, if you have to write for guitar, you better hire a really good guitar player because it'll really <laughs> save you. Yeah. And she put together this CD that had art tracks interspersed with some pre-existing band uh, tracks from other bands, kind of like that didn't, the, just to see if the producer could tell the difference. And the producer was completely shocked and and flustered and it's like uh, oh i guess i guess you guys can do more than just uh, orchestral superhero music i guess you can do this so so we got the gig and yeah. that was a, that was a really good thing it was a blessing in disguise the producer was sometimes very difficult to work with because he's very very opinionated but uh, in high in hindsight i think it was a great training ground to be put through the ringer and have to do rewrites and changes and 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 uh, whatnot Pretty, but that, that was the that was, just,
2: that was the first. At, at that point in time, it was the first time when we actually previewed any music for the producer. It was just coming into vogue at that time because of all the equipment that was available. It, it had never been something that had been done before. We certainly never previewed anything on any of the orchestral shows that we had done. But for this show, because it was mostly synth-based and mostly a sort of a rock and heavy metal approach, it was possible because we had the sounds and we could do it. And because of the kind of person that the producer was, he kind of like wanted it, and so, you know, so we did that for the first time and, and I and it, I'm glad we did because it really forced us to step up to the plate and start to be able to develop a thicker skin about our work and uh, it was really Kim vital.
1: you were on board then too Kim yes. Strand music editor yes. was, was on Kim, board too, yeah. <laughs> yeah. and Allison was were, you, were you us. there at that point y'all already yes. Allison Shirley's uh, assistant Allison the amazing Allison so we were one big happy <laughs> family over there at underscore music and and spending, it seeming, we had a good budget, which I don't know what's happened since then. I mean, budgets now are completely different than they used to be, but Ridiculous. we would actually have, we would track and then we, we would submix and then do, you know.
2: It was a five day production process for the score, which didn't count the writing. We had two days of submixing, two days of mixing, a final mixing, and one day of recording before, uh, in between all of that, or before all that. And so, you know, five days. I mean, we're like going to have three days to write the whole show nowadays. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we spent five days just mixing. So I mean, it was kind of crazy. But it was fun. It was wonderful. And we had this great sense of camaraderie. That's, I think that's what I like about the three of us working together, is that we've retained some of that sense of camaraderie and of community you know, in the midst of all of this thing where everybody is now their own island. I mean, we're also disconnected now. We have our home studio, and we don't really leave that studio very much. But, you know, working with two other people. don't leave it
3: very much at all. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Thank you for this. We're out of our studio. Um, yes, we but, get to come out and
1: play. To,
3: ah, light, light, vitamin D. Um, so.
2: <laughs> But, but I mean, it, it's really, we missed that. You know, we had that this sense where we'd go to Shirley's place and we would hang out and we would talk and we would have meals together and we would listen to each other's music and learn from each other's music and share our ideas and our thoughts about things and have this sort of group think thing. And, and I th- just don't think we wanted to give that up. So that's why we kind of stuck together.
1: We did. And, and at a certain point, um, another series came along and Shirley basically. Didn't really want to do that anymore, and uh, also the budget was drastically cut on the, on this on this particular series.
2: And she was busy on features. She was busy as well. on
1: features, and she basically uh, it kind of was a she kicked us out out to the curb and said, well, I think you guys can do this show, but I'm not going to do it with you, and you're on, you're on your own sort she of. She
2: agreed to do the show, but then and then she, when it came time to spot the show, she said, well, I'm not going to do the show, so just go do it.
1: Of course, she was she was pushing the the, the birds out of the nest and and such, so I mean I. I think we still are in Shirley's shadow and she is on on our on our shoulder and our guardian angel still now very very much and will always be for the rest of our lives um, and somewhere along along that at that process where she where at that point where she kind of kicked us out the door um, we did start developing other contacts and we have worked on on several Warner Brothers shows since then that have you know haven't been as a result of Shirley and of course the things that we've uh, are doing now are things that we've yeah. sort of gotten our own on, on our, our own, own merit. I guess.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, that's kind of where we are nowadays. But you need to say something too, so <laughs> no, nothing more to say. Okay. Well, we'd like to take some questions. We don't want to monopolize this whole time. So yeah, go ahead. I think it's all up for grabs. I think it depends on the composer. I think it depends on the music supervisor. It depends on what the composer and the producer want to get out of the show and whether they're willing to make it happen. There are shows that are being scored with orchestra nowadays, but they're kind, it's kind of this hunt and peck kind of thing. You don't find it everywhere. You find it here and there.
1: Or it's the, it's the show, epi- it's the big episode, but then the weekly stuff gets done or some of it's right. tracked. Um, I refuse to to say that there's not going to be orchestra and TV. I mean, that's ridiculous. There's nothing that can replace the human aspect that is put into the bowing or blowing air through the instrument and the heart and the performance. So it's really up to us to take every opportunity that we can to make a show for these producers. To, to have some sort of an event that they think is exciting and that they want to be a part of. Because they're stuck in their little cubicles and in their little meetings with their other executives and having to get all this approval from all these various sources. This, it's really, each show is, is by committee. There are very few shows that are just one visionary. It's pretty much a committee. Or in our situation, we have toy companies that are involved that weigh in on on scenarios. So I, I think it's up to us. Now, If with the with the kind of budgets, realistically, that are being offered, it, it it's not going to happen with that kind of a budget but we have to be creative about it and as a community we have to come up with solutions and i know i was talking to mike at at, uh, at uh, Mike's, mike lang we remember we were talking at the christmas party about what what could we do how could we do this you know we i mean do, you don't really want to create just a library i mean I, no offense to library composers but we've always thoroughly scored each each episode we don't we haven't really tracked or or you know re, re i mean you reuse themes but you don't you write each each piece to the picture. So we should, we should have a forum about that and think of creative ways to make things, to improve the situations. So.
2: Yeah, I think what uh, the main point is that you have to want it. You know, and as, and as a composer, if there's a way to get it, well, then you have to really go for trying to get that to happen. Because it's certainly not normal. And I, I think you know, it would be great if it were more normal. But I think, you know, like you said, we're responsible for that. And we try to find, we try to, I think with the three of us working together, I think there's more opportunity to make stuff like that happen. Because you know, we can sort of divide up the workload and stuff and deal with the deadline issue and scoring issues and scoring duties. It makes it a little bit easier, I think.
3: I'd like to think that it's something that that goes in in cycles, too. I mean, I I think there was a time when electronic scoring kind of took off and people thought, I I thought that was more of a creative decision myself. But but then people came back to saying, well, you just can't replace the live musicians. And in the intervening time, the samples have gotten scarily good. It's really amazing what you can do with samples. But I I think that any time that I've had a chance to work with an independent director or somebody that has maybe done his projects in film school with samples and then say, look, we can have a session with real musicians. And they hear that, they don't want to go back. So I'm I'm hoping we just got to keep encouraging the people that hire us of of the importance of and get them excited about the process, too.
1: Yes. Well, Question one, DP. Digital Digital performer.
3: performer.
2: (laughs) 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 No logic at all. There's no no logic to our choice to to use
3: digital performer. (laughs) Um,
1: Um. Here's we, we often get a request for something that's never been done before, but that has a retro feel to it. Okay. So. <laughs> um,
3: and so retro I means you, different things to you. different people too. Uh, I I think yeah. a lot of times retro, if producers now are saying retro, they almost mean a 70s kind or of maybe feel. 80s. 80s, yeah, yeah. 80s is retro now. 80s it seems like. is like retro. My God, it's like
1: I wrote school. a cue yesterday for a high school scene that is kind of an 80s John Hughes kind of thing, and and. Uh, it, it wasn't retro to me at all because
0: I, felt, I
1: I played all those sounds in a top forty band when I was uh, way back when. Anyway, I think
2: the I think everything old is new again, and I think that you know the producers want to hear something different, and if they can have a throwback to the past that is new to them, then they call that retro because maybe it's new to them. I don't know.
1: I keep I keep hoping for some sort of a a, a series that will have kind of a jazz. Uh, tilt to it, where I can just write out a chord chart and, and hire Mike and, and, the, and the guys oh to just play God. and just do it. Oh. <laughs>
3: Squirt in one day. We, we got a special custom-made piano bench for three. Yeah. We, we switch positions now and I now. think
1: yeah. it's, it's maybe I, I wasn't around during the staff composing days but um, I think that from, my, from the stories that Morrow was telling me there used to be several composers on a series and you just split it up and that's kind of what we do we, sometimes we split up you take this episode, you take that episode or, or lately we've been splitting up each episode so that one composer doesn't have to sit around while the other, one's, other one is really really busy
2: um, but we also split it up because if there's like a 5 minute action queue we'll take and maybe split that into two or three parts to make it just more manageable and then we'll you know communicate with what we're doing so that it seamlessly overlaps and we have yet for anybody to tell the difference between what you know where those breaks are so but I mean, then it's, it's just it, it, what other project needs we can provide in that way so that makes it good for us and good for them
3: but when it's time to put the notes on the page we actually do that individually we just have a lot of communication back yeah. and forth i mean we don't actually we don't compose s- together right. Yeah, no, sounds... we
1: will reuse some. We, 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 will, we will use each other's themes. If, we're, if one of us is following a certain character and that character appears in a queue that Mike's doing, he might take Chris's theme and just plop it in somewhere, and, you know, like that.
3: Okay. Yes, sir. There's still a difference. I mean, it's, what's interesting is that to really know our, our, our music and our background, we have pretty different styles, but we're all able to find the part of our musical voice that will match the other three so that the show sounds homogenous. Um, I think it comes from the drama. I think we all have yeah. very similar dramatic instincts, but we don't we don't set out to try and have the exact same product, you know the sound of the cu- right. of the final cue. it It doesn't necessarily sound like it's all the same library. so we don't we don't always layer the same things.
1: Well, because no, no. of the time situation, we we have uh, uh, my husband Mark Matson uh, mixes Mike's stuff and my stuff, and then Mako Sujishi uh, mixes Chris's things because it usually is. Uh, we have a day or something to get it all done yeah, so we bit pretty much i mean we would even sometimes need 3 if we or 4 engineers just to get it all done
2: uh, and we're time. not really striving for that kind of an approach and i think we've gotten a lot of really good feedback from producers they like the idea that that they're getting something a little bit different every time they hear the music within an episode, that it isn't just always the same thing. And they, they like that freshness that comes to a new cue when a new cue comes up. And so that's it's working for them.
3: But they, they really do blend well together. Again, I don't think you could come away from an episode and, and you, you'd you be able to instantly say that was Mike's cue because of the sound. You right. might say it if you knew his style or Lelita's style or my, or whatever, whatever I'm doing.
1: Damon has a question. Yes, sir. Hi, Damon, by the way. <laughs> It's, this is a work in progress. I mean, we have. I think that uh, the sa- safety in numbers is a good thing because when one composer is completely exhausted and has not slept for two nights, I don't know what kind of quality music that composer is going to be able to turn out for the for the deadline. Um, but sure, I think that the idea of working with one visionary is is very romantic. But these days, I mean, in film, we have a lot of visionaries out there with a lot of little elves and 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 work soldiers making that happen. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, even even back back in in my orchestration heyday, I remember uh, being at a, at a particular composer's house, and and a cue was being doled out to Bill Ross, and Bill Bill's comment to the composer was, well, how, how heavy is this ball? And meaning, if, if the ball's really heavy, that means you better give me cue sheet credit because I'm actually writing the cue for you. So I think that the idea that there's been this team effort, uh, it's people are realizing it more and more that it's, it's more than just one person behind it all. So.
2: Well, and frankly, we don't tell people who's written what. It's not important to us to be recognized individually when we're working together like this. And so we don't tell the producer, well, this person wrote this cue, or this person wrote that well, cue, Well, sometimes so.
1: we kind of... Well, they,
2: ca- they can guess sometimes, or well, when we respond, you know, to, to their comments, of course, then they're going to know. But we don't go into it saying, well, you know, Chris is a specialized person who does this, you know, and he's going to do these kinds of cues. It's, it's not, We don't approach it that way. We approach it with a more kind of a group think, I guess. <laughs>
3: But there's, I guess, a little bit of confusion sometimes in the producer's face. He wants to give a comment, and he's not quite sure who does. So he'll just kind of put the comment out there, and then he sees who answers. But that's good. We use that to our advantage, and that kind of diffusing
2: of those kind of pointed... You know, it's good to diffuse those things.
1: Another thing that we've just recently really realized is that... um, the producer or the director or the whoever the main creative visionary is um, sometimes just Neat loves to hear the feedback about their project that they've been working on. We were so self-absorbed with our music and do they like our music? But sometimes if we spend the spotting, spend the spotting session just talking about that character and oh how cool it was that, that he turned right when he did and who was, oh that was a great idea i mean just it's it's a little it's a little bit bs sometimes but it's just <laughs> you know you want to get them excited because they they're, they're it's their project you know so right yes mr tatro remembers
2: it we're all three bmi composers mm-hmm. well whoever writes it gets credit yes
1: mm-hmm. that's correct mm-hmm. and the publishing is owned by Whomever. Whoever Warner Brothers or Sony. but we're
2: basically I mean I, I, in my in, in, in my opinion I'm sure this is true for them but we're sort of carrying on you know what we were taught by Shirley because I mean she always gave whoever wrote the music credit for the music and that's how it is if that person wrote it they get the credit on the cue sheet and so we're doing that for ourselves too I mean you know if, if we divide up a cue we divide up the seconds and we put the two cues in, and there it is so.
1: For the royalties, we just, we have, a, the BMI had some sort of a, a form that we just, we use that as a template, the Excel. Well, thing. each
2: production has its own way of filing those cue sheets, and so we have to sort of respond however.
1: We, have, oh, no, 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 we're just we're dynamic informal. music partners, <laughs> dynamic music partners in spirit, but we each yeah. have our individual corporations. And actually, yeah, and for a particular production, the, cor- the uh, a corporation will be, one of our corporations will be paid, and then our corporation will pay, you know, okay. Uh, Mike wrote 7.26 minutes on this show, and that percentage of this this chunk of money is such and such, and so we'll write a check to Mike or Chris or vice versa, depending on who's taking care of the business aspect.
3: And we figured that out with a filemaker database that Mike spent all his time programming that he learned when he was Ta-da. yeah. With Mike Lang. Are there so see all those early. Skills. Oh, it goes back to Mike. Yeah. <laughs> Del uh,
2: Do you mean like do we use Oracle and stuff like that? We use Digital Performer to sequence, yes. Mm -hmm.
3: Yeah, we all did. When we're were working with the orchestra, I I know I personally prefer to work with the Oracle just because it's in terms of translating my music to what the orchestra is going to need to follow. The Oracle is the most flexible, but if it's something that's going to be largely synth, you know, created in the synths, it made more sense to just use DP.
1: I mean, I started out with the Newton Click Track book.
2: Yeah, or too. with
1: a stopwatch. I mean, and I remember when something had to be hit, it wasn't okay if it was on the next beat. It would have to be on the third sixteenth note of bar four or something, which is kind of ridiculous. But, but uh, I learned the old way first. Yep. Oh, we want to cover it. We want to keep yeah, the money. Absolutely,
2: yeah. especially
3: if it's source. <laughs> yeah, on screen visual, visual source.
2: source
3: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, but and that's not something that would be sprung on us. That's something we would we determine during the spotting session. I mean, we we talk generally about speaking. not just the score, generally yeah. speaking.
1: And also, yeah. we have a full we we hate it, but we have a full preview. All of our music is previewed before we record any live instruments, or uh, or mix. So, and we we try to leave ourselves at least three or four days in between the the dub date and the and the preview, so that you know if something has to be rewritten. We have time to do it.
2: Yeah, we actually have to try to get done early with everything to allow for that sort of interplay between what their response is to what we've done and then what we have to do to deliver the music
1: with his voice, uh, then they have to call
2: the record company. They call Barry. (laughs) Barry. And we have nothing to do with that.
1: I played piano, but here's the deal. I won Jazz Performer, the big plaque that they give to the senior, but I was such a fake. I I took all of Toshiko Akiyoshi's uh, uh, solos. I played exactly what she played. I learned, I I did not improv, I could not improvise my way out of a paper bag, but I won Best Jazz Soloist because I could play all the fast stuff.
2: (laughs) I did the same thing. I transcribed all these Solos and I just played them exactly the way they were, and everybody thought it was brilliant. It was, I don't know, I can't improvise at all.
1: I know I improvise a little bit. You
2: can do more than I can.
1: Well, and we're fans of you too. Yes, Jack. definitely. Thank you for coming. Thank you yes, for, We got kind of scared yesterday when there weren't that many RSVPs. Oh, let's we'll just nice. cancel it. It's nice. Thank yeah. you for coming. We appreciate you it. The yeah, we appreciate <laughs> it. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Thanks, guys. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Thank you for listening to another Asmac podcast. We welcome your feedback at ASMAC.org. This is Ian Freebairn-Smith on behalf of the board, and I would like to invite you to attend our events, including luncheons, master classes, and our annual Golden Score Awards Banquet. For a complete list of our podcasts and DVDs, please visit our website at www.asmac.org. Many thanks to Larry Goldman of Balboa Studios for recording this talk, and to Elliot Barker of Elbar Media for editing it for broadcast.